Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Taste the Mediterranean through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. Save on animal welfare certified bone-in beef short ribs, sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, and more. Find sales on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie and ground lamb. Grab an olive boule bread from the bakery. Plus, wines from the Mediterranean start at just $8.99. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Must be 21+. plus. Please drink responsibly. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. This year, I am celebrating my 20th year as a UNICEF ambassador. My work as an ambassador has taken me around the world, including a trip I made to Egypt in 2022. To talk about the state of affairs in Egypt, I have invited Dina Hekel, UNICEF's social and behavioral change officer, who I met while in Egypt. My name is Alyssa Milano, and I'm a UNICEF ambassador and I've been an ambassador since 2003. It's scarcely believable, but there can be moments of deep joy amidst the devastation. Like when a little boy is found apparently unscathed, and he can even laugh and joke with his rescuers. These scenes will become rarer in the coming hours, but for now, there is still hope. In Abu Tiq, life hasn't changed much over time. People live as they have for generations and according to the same customs. It is still common practice for women to ask permission to leave their houses. I am in Hayoum, Egypt, uh, in front of the Dawi Center, which is this incredible program. I have been here all day, um, and it's about empowering young girls and women. All right, I'm Vina. I'm passionate about child rights and girls' empowerment. Sorry, not sorry. Dina, it is so good to see you again. And there's so much I want to talk to you about. But first, just tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and the work that you do. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. And thank you for having me. Really, I miss you so much. I'm Dina Haikal. I work with UNICEF, Egypt Country Office, uh, as a social and behavioral change officer. And I'm part of the lead team on the Girls Empowerment Program, Dawi, which means to echo and reverberate in Arabic. And I'm just so passionate about children's rights and girls' empowerment. And it's such an honor and a privilege to be here and to be able to talk about it, really. 
And real quick, because I think we have to mention that as we're recording this, it's just a few days since the major earthquake and series of aftershocks that has devastated parts of Turkey and Syria. More than 21,000 people. I know it's very easy to just think of that number as a lump sum, but I want everyone to really think about 21,000 individuals are confirmed dead. And each one of those people has families and relatives. So this impact is, I don't think anyone can truly wrap their heads around it. Tens of thousands are injured, and many, many, many more are without homes. Let's just real briefly just talk about the role that UNICEF has in helping the recovery efforts in these countries. I mean, it's absolutely heartbreaking, the lives and the families. We're really hoping that they recover somehow from this, although it's incredibly devastating. Our hearts and prayers go out to them. UNICEF is doing all that we possibly can. If you go to our social media platforms, you'll find links where you can donate. We really are hoping children's lives are prioritized. It's really heartbreaking and it just, it really hit hard and it just keeps on coming. So we really hope it stabilizes somehow in the region. And we also see a lot of volunteers going in. Aid is trying to go in as well, trying to help these families out in these really difficult times. And Ankara, correct me if I'm wrong, that's the capital of Turkey, and it's only about 700 miles from Cairo in Egypt. And I thought about you because I know how much work UNICEF does with refugees from Syria and Yemen and I'm wondering how UNICEF in Egypt will be taking on some of these refugees and the people who have been impacted by the earthquake. Egypt has always been a home, really. And even when we work with them in the hosting communities, all it is about is getting the necessary healthcare and suitable conditions for them to really feel welcome, most importantly. And through diversified work, whether it's immediate and emergency help, Joining us now from Damascus, Syria, is UNICEF Representative Angela Kearney. Angela, you are based in Syria. When the earthquake hit, how have you been using your knowledge of the country to help manage these relief efforts in extraordinary circumstances? Yeah, I think that we've been here for such a long time before the disaster happened and right through this last period of war. And it's just that we have built up community relationships of people that we work with. We work with national, local, uh, non-governmental organisations. And so knowing the communities, knowing where we are, has been very useful. Even so, the learning process is not stopped. We try to do everything we possibly can on ground to really help these families, children out as much as we possibly can. UNICEF has this great program called the Learning Passport, where refugees from other countries can go and have a meeting place. And they have these programs, these computers that basically teach the curriculum of their country of origin so that they can go and not lose any schooling and immediately pick up and learn from their own countries of origin the curriculum, which I just think is so smart. So that is one way that UNICEF will probably actively be helping those that have been devastated from the earthquake, you know, come in and try to make sense of it all and have a sense of normalcy. And I think 
that's a good place to start talking about Egypt, which I was so blessed to be with you in September of last year. And the experience was so magical and hard and all of, you know, just runs the gamut of emotions. Tell us about the country and tell us a bit about the history and really where we are now and where we're striving to be. First of all, thank you so much for coming. It was such an honor and a privilege to have you. And I still have some of the girls that have met you. They're saying, oh, my God, we felt heard and seen. And it was magical because it really is about whether you're in whatever country of origin you are from, there's a universal language. Empowerment is a universal language. And to be seen, to feel seen and heard, that's really what it's all about. And it's the validation of these feelings. We're not looking at children or girls specifically as cases or issues, but as humans with their rights and what they have to say. They have to say so much. And being able to be part of this is absolutely magnificent that we get the privilege to be facilitating different dialogues and platforms where children and especially girls can actually have the opportunity to express themselves, to get learning opportunities, to be skilled, to have just the basic and necessary services for their well-being, whether it's mental or physical well-being, for protection services. And this is really what UNICEF is and has always been trying to do, you know, it's been over 75 years of UNICEF in Egypt. And all we can think of is what's next? We need to do more. Egypt is a country of over 100 million people and 30 million of these are children. And all we're thinking about is how can we reach those children? How can we better serve them and their families so that they have the proper healthcare, nutrition, learning opportunities that they are accepted, felt and heard? Because children are going to save the world. Absolutely. That's the future. I really believe the young people that are young right now are going to be so incredibly powerful. And it's amazing the power that these children have, the empathy, the brilliance of how they think, their thought process. It really is about just providing the chance for them to really be there and express themselves and protecting them, really. That's our duty. Well, when I was there, I think the thing that I noticed that I'm not sure I've felt on other UNICEF trips that I've taken, I feel like Egypt feels like it might be at a tipping point where things could really start getting better for the people or things could start getting worse. I feel like it can go either way. There's such extremes in the poverty is so extreme in parts of the country, for example which obviously leads to food insecurity. About 80% of Egypt's wheat imports comes from Russia and Ukraine. It also imports 98% of its vegetable oil needs, 70% of which comes from the same two countries. The Russian-Ukrainian crisis shocked the global supply of food items, making Egypt vulnerable. There are still remote villages in Egypt that are practicing female genital mutilation, so there's a lot that's happening that still we need to work on. And I'm wondering how you feel about it. Do you feel hopeful or does it just depend on the day and where you are? Like, how is Egypt specifically confronting these challenges? And then how is UNICEF helping Egypt confront these challenges? 
I fully agree with you. I mean, the idea of it going either way is absolutely there. I am feeling hopeful, though. And what actually gives me hope is any field trip that I take to the field, anywhere I go, and meeting the people. There's so much resilience and power and positivity that they seem to have about, you know, things are rough, but still people are like, we can make it, we can still rely on each other. There's so much social power and empathy that is still there that gives us hope. Sometimes we have our bad days and you open the news and you feel such despair. But what keeps us going really is the people. There's still this resilient factor of we know things are not easy. We know we have to try harder, but we can make it. You open this conversation beautifully that children really are the hope for tomorrow. They are the future. They're the change makers. And this is UNICEF's mandate. We're blessed with a mandate that is about children. It's about hope and change that is coming. And I feel like Egypt, there have been so many efforts trying to go into that direction. We see leadership really trying to push that with so much heart and linking that. UNICEF is just facilitating and trying to help out what is happening with the community, with the leadership. And we feel ultimately things will turn around and it will be positive. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. See, when I think about poverty in the United States, I can very specifically pinpoint what is keeping people who live in low-income communities down. Like, I know what it is. We all know how to fix it. I feel like when I go on our UNICEF trips, I feel like sometimes it is so overwhelming the amount of hardship and poverty. And maybe it's because I don't completely understand the historical, cultural things that happen with all of these countries. But I was overwhelmed with, A, that there was a lot of hope, but the diversity in, or the dichotomy in the hope, and then also feeling like it was overwhelming. I know what obstacles we have to overcome in our country to make sure everyone has equal access and equitable access to education and healthcare. What obstacles are in the way overcoming the challenges that Egypt faces? I mean, it's such a difficult question because I agree with you. There's so much multiple, diverse, and multidimensional poverty here. And it goes beyond monetary poverty, which we know is now exasperated by the global economic conditions that 
have hit probably some countries harder than others, let's just say, um, the inflation rate. But there are also other kinds of poverty nutrition. We see some of the numbers and it's heartbreaking. Access to not just education, but learning opportunities. Because beyond getting academically successful, you still need skills that can equip you for tomorrow. And we know that the pace is so fast now in the world that some of the skills will need to be better strengthened to be able to compete in a proper job market and get a decent job and so forth. So really preparing for tomorrow. But also the social part of it is also quite critical. The acceptance of some hardships that sometimes were seen as okay, but they really aren't. You mentioned female genital mutilation, child marriage, things of that sort. They are getting better but we need to do a lot more. There's still so much more to be done. And so, yes, living in a decent place and getting access to the proper education and healthcare, yes, but also feeling safe, protected, being able to walk and freely, this is universal, right? And so looking here at poverty dimension and how to get out of it, we really need to all work together. The social cohesion part is critical because it will rely a lot not only on providing services, but being able to actually access it, being able to feel safe, secure, still the resilience factor has to be there because change does take time. Development does take time. It's sometimes frustrating for us working in the development field, but as long as there's hope and as long as we keep on pushing, we're very confident we will succeed. You mentioned female genital mutilation and you mentioned child marriages. And it made me think about after the earthquake, did you see that viral video that happened with the little girl that was under the rubble? She said to her rescuer, please get me out. I'll do anything. I'll be your maid for life. And I was like, if that isn't exactly why we need to empower our young girls, that statement that she could think that was the thing that would get him to move faster to rescue her, it was just heartbreaking. And one of the main focuses of my trip to Egypt was to speak to women and girls and see how they're faring culturally in their society. And I want you to tell us a little bit about what you are doing to empower and educate women and girls and boys with the DAWI program. So the idea really and the thought process came out of, you know, we need, like you said, you saw something like that viral video and it hit a nerve. And the idea of equity and equality, idea of it is truly universal. And to be able to feel empowered to say what you feel, to voice your opinion, and to be heard and accepted is really what we try to work on on our Girls Empowerment Program. It's about the girls, the boys, the families, and the community members really coming together. So no girl ever has to say, I'll be your maid. I mean, the heartbreaking of the video is that that girl has been under the rubbles for so long, and it's a moment of absolute despair. And we don't want anyone to feel that despair ever, not a girl or boy. 
And so the idea of Dawi really came from, and let me just say that the Arabic word Dawi, which means to echo and reverberate, in Arabic we have similar to French, it's gendered. The words are usually feminine or masculine, but Dawi actually, the action verb, is neither. It's a gender neutral verb. And it's basically for everyone to say, I stand for gender equality. I stand for equity. That's who I am a part of. And so we work with entire communities together to come to that. No girl has to get deprived from proper education and learning. We're here to listen to her and to help her reach her full potential. No girl ever has to feel unsafe. Her body is her body. The autonomy of it, the dignity of it. No one has to do anything to it. If she chooses to get married, she gets married in an age that is appropriate to her when she feels comfortable, not when she's just a child. Her mental well-being, we now see so many children and COVID really exasperated that. Everyone going online. How can I protect myself online? But how can I also benefit from all of this? Because there's so much still good online that I can benefit from. And this is just part of what Dewey is trying to do really is to push the movement, the social change that no girl or woman has ever feel that they're unequal or that they don't have the same opportunities as they are of their male counterparts at all. And the male counterparts are their allies. They're there to help them, to support them. This isn't the battle of the sexes. This isn't just picking one over the other. This is about, you know what, if girls and women do better, because unfortunately and universally, the numbers, they're not doing so well on the equity and equality terms. But if they do better, we all do better. Economies are better. Our healthcare is better. Our children are better. Our mental well-being is better. It really is about everyone. And this is what Dawi is trying to do, is to really trigger the social change, the movement on ground and with the leaders so that these opportunities are not just mere ideas, but they're actualization of what the future can actually be. Well, there are two specific things about the Dowie program that I was really blown away by. And one was the inclusion of educating boys on feminism and empowering them to realize young girls' strength and autonomy and all of that. And simple things, you know, the moment we were all outside playing soccer together and the boys had to cheer on the girls. Things that you don't think would have impact, but you saw those girls who were playing soccer and hearing those boys cheer for them. And that was so incredibly special. And then there's a, a sharing circle where the boys are in a circle and they all talk about how they can support the women and girls in their lives better. And I think that's such an important part of raising an equitable future for young people is to learn about each other, learn about the differences and that these differences are what makes us special and not less than. So I was really struck by that. And then I was also really taken by the generational conversations that were happening between mothers and daughters. By the way, I feel like everyone can use one of those talks especially mothers and daughters everywhere, I think always have this unique dynamic. 
But I would love for you to talk a little bit about why it's so important for the generational conversations to happen. That was one of the main entry points for Dawi, really, because what we found is there's such a huge generational gap between the girls and the boys and their parents and their caregivers in a way that they struggle to really understand each other. Communication here is key. There's always this saying and the statistics that most of what happens wrong happens due to either lack of communication or just wrong communication that happens between people. 13-year-old Yusriya Al-Fikri was afraid she'd never get a chance to go to school. I was sad because I couldn't read advertisements and signs in the street or newspapers. Nothing, not even my own name. And the idea really was to create simple mechanisms where and exercises where parents and children can speak and try to understand each other, to put each other in each other's shoes. That when a parent does this, it's not because they hate the child, it's what they think is best for the child. And when the child does something, it's out of love and respect. It's not out of being disrespectful. It's just out of who they are. And these simple conversations, putting each other in each other's shoes, practicing a mirror exercise where I see my own reflection in my child and vice versa, it just breaks down those barriers, those gaps that build walls really between the two different generations, which that's not what we want. And simple conversations and dialogues go such a long way. For instance, the mediator said, I want you to look at each other and the moms, I would like for you to look at your daughter and tell your daughter what you love about them. Just simple questions like that. Girls, I want you to look at your moms and tell your moms what you want for your future. And I think more than even the dialogue, the eye contact breaks down a lot of those walls, I feel like. Because, I mean, I'm a grown woman and I'm not so sure I make eye contact with my parents enough, you know, where I just stop and really see them. And so I think that is so incredibly vital to understanding each other. And it was such a just the whole program was magical, truly. And you should be very proud. And I hope and I pray that UNICEF adopts this program in other countries because I think it is and would be very useful. And just so you know, the sharing circle that the girls did about protecting themselves. So there's one room where the girls are sharing about how best to protect themselves and protect each other, specifically in regards to female genital mutilation. And what they did was so beautiful because every time someone spoke, the mediator had a spool of yarn that would be wrapped around the wrist of whoever spoke. And at the end of this session, there was just this beautiful web of yarn and all the girls had the yarn around their wrists. And it was such a beautiful way to show how interconnected we all are. And then after that was done, the facilitator took scissors and cut and made bracelets out of the yarn. And so all the girls had this yarn around their wrist. And I was asked to go to my son's fifth grade class and give a lecture on immigration. 
And we had a sharing circle and I brought yarn and I was so inspired by what you did. And everyone that shared their family's story of immigration, I would put the yarn around them. And at the end, we had this beautiful web. And I asked the question, like, what does this signify? Why do you think this yarn is so important? And they said, because we're all connected. And it was so beautiful. So I just wanted to say that the lessons that you taught me through the Dowie program, I was able to bring home and share with my children. And thank you for that. No, thank you. This is what it's all about, humanity. We are all interconnected. And oh my God, this story is just bringing tears to my eyes because it's so relevant nowadays for all of us to feel connected, to feel heard. And it's a wild time because the internet should make us more connected. But I think the dangers of it, it doesn't feel, it never feels safe. So it's not that feeling of interconnection where you feel like, like when Twitter first started and the protests were going on in Iran, or when I first started on Twitter, I felt this real interconnectedness because I felt like I was getting first-time reports from the protesters on the ground that had no filtration, right? media wasn't there. It was all like just coming to my computer, which felt so personal. And somehow we've gotten away from that feeling like they're talking to us or that feeling of connection. And I don't know, I just feel like in a way we should feel more connected than ever before. And yet it feels as though we're less connected. It feels like we all live in these silos and we celebrated in my youth. When I was young, we celebrated diversity and connection. And it was never, in my household anyway, it was never to ignore the struggles of someone else. It was more on, here are the struggles of these people, but also we're all human and we should all be connected and feel connected and take care of each other and do for one another. I just feel like we've strayed from that. And it's part of the reason why I feel so incredibly blessed to constantly be reminded by the joy and the openness of young people through my trips with UNICEF and my work with UNICEF, that we are the same. We are all looking for our happily ever after. And it doesn't mean we're the same in like how we got here and what struggle we had to overcome. But the thing we all have in common is this innate ability, and you said it before, this innate ability to hope and to dream for a brighter tomorrow. And I don't think that's celebrated enough anymore. I just want to talk a little bit about the sort of business aspect for UNICEF because it's a unique position because it's under the umbrella of the United Nations and works directly in nations where it's sometimes trying to work in opposition to or maybe on the evolution of national policies. And that's a very fine line. So how does UNICEF walk this line of trying to work with governments and against some oppressive practices in their countries? And my listeners should know that UNICEF, the reason why UNICEF isn't in the United States 
is because a government needs to request UNICEF's presence. And the only time that ever happened in the U.S. was after Hurricane Katrina with schools in a box. You're right. It's definitely a fine line. The idea really of how even the U.N. was created was to just try to have a positive impact in the world and a presence, right? We try. We're in over 190 countries. The idea really is that we have to work with the government and the communities, both with civil society organizations, with activists, with everyone. What we try to do is facilitate that process and that coordination in a way that would benefit everyone. So not only are we working on ground to leave no one behind, but we also don't want to leave anyone out of the national conversation. Because if we want development to last, to be sustained, we still need policies, we still need laws and regulations, we still need to work on ground, whether it's humanitarian assistance on spot or development projects, or even the social and behavioral change aspect, or to support the government, strengthen the service. This is why we're here, really, to serve the people, first and foremost, and mainly the children. That's why we're here. And so it means working with everyone. In Egypt, we work a lot with the government because we also see such a positive outlook on trying to make things better, genuinely trying to make things better. And we work with communities, with children, with the community leaders, with religious leaders, with everyone, because everyone has a role in development, right? It's not only one organization or one person or one function. It's everyone coming together to just make life a little better if we can. We try. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Well, I should mention two things. One is no organization has saved more children's lives than UNICEF. For 60 years, UNICEF has delivered tons of life-saving supplies for every child from the world's largest humanitarian warehouse that it operates in Denmark. So much of it fits in a box, from oxygen equipment, tablets to purify water, ready-to-use therapeutic food, mosquito nets, volleyballs, to entire schools. Supplies are always on their way to children, sourced with care, packed with love, filled with hope. But also I think what you touched on before is important for people to hear, this idea that these programs are sustainable. Talk a little bit about how you do that. Like, 
I was amazed that in the Dowie program, you are training people to take over the Dowie program so that they can share the knowledge that they learned and be the facilitators of these programs in the future. Can you just talk about why sustainability is so important? It's actually one of the core pillars that we have whenever we're starting any intervention program or project. The sustainability factor is essential because UNICEF could be here today, but not tomorrow. And it really is about supporting and serving the people and the country. And that means that the country can then later take this on beyond UNICEF, beyond anybody really, take control and power of that development process. And so while designing any program or intervention, this is one key element that we have to take into consideration. What can be done that is sustained, that is not a quick win and that we have to be there all the time? No, but how do we make our programs replicable, scalable? Because in some countries, for example, in Egypt, as I was saying, we're like 110 million people. That's massive. So how do we reach everyone so everyone benefits? And that the design itself is proper to the context. So we're not here to change the context of the country or the norms of the people. We're here to really facilitate a process where the people and the country themselves take control of the matter. We just provide that little nudge in the beginning, technical input. Because of the global and universality of UNICEF, what we try to do is also get all this technical input and insights and see what is the best way that can be done within the given context. The data is very important because we learn from that. Absolutely. And it guides us. But what also guides us is the community mechanism, the feedback mechanism we get from the community, because sometimes they come back to us and they're like, you know what? It's not about building more schools so our girls can go to school. It's about making it safe for the girl to go to school, having proper safe bathrooms, having access to ministerial hygiene products. It's these things that make us go, okay, then we need to work also with the community to make sure that their needs are met. And they're able to take this on later on. And when Dewi was created, it was created with community and the government, both, to make sure that we're not only pushing for better policies, but also that everything that is happening is based on the actual needs of the communities. And then later on, the communities take this on. This is not just UNICEF owned. This is not ours. This is yours. You know, and it gives them a sense of pride and a sense of ownership. And I think that's so important. I have a tough question. This is the thing that keeps me up at night. Around the world, why are so many children suffering so much? Why do we let it happen? It's such a difficult question. And it is really, I don't think there's one right answer, but my personal view is that because they're put in very vulnerable situations. We sometimes overlook children as humans and we just, we look at them as something that just came along instead of actual humans with people's feelings and needs that need to be met. And we're here to help them reach that adulthood stage and making sure they're safe, they're well-nurtured, 
emotionally, physically, and we just need to change that mindset. The children suffering, we need to change our mindset. They're not just children, they're humans. We need to be there for them. We have a responsibility and an accountability. If we're bringing children into this world, we need to ensure that it's safe for them. We need to ensure that all their needs are met. This is why we're here, to pass on this world to them. And if the world is a cruel place, it's not fair. It really is not fair. Very hard to overcome a rough start. Absolutely. I want you to tell people again how people can support UNICEF, in particular UNICEF Egypt and its many critical global missions. First of all, please follow us on our platforms, website, and social media pages. Check out our programs. We always have links to everything. Spread the word. Donate. I'm sure you'll see the links also with Alisa's social media platforms and really root for children all the time. They are the future. This is what we hope for. And finally, what gives you hope? What gives me hope? Uh, my children, actually. My daughter, Layla, and my son, Hussein. I look at them and I know I have to keep going. Sometimes there are bad days and difficult days, but I look at them and I know we have to keep going. We have to serve people. That's why we're here. Everyone has a mission, so it's important to stay true to that. Dina, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure, Elisa. Thank you so much. These are trying situations that people, that refugees come together. Um, there are trying situations that led them all to this, to this place. So the fact that they can all be together and form a new community, but still learn the curriculum from their country so that if they do plan on going back to their country, the lessons that they learned here are appropriate. The thing that I kept hearing because I had the opportunity to sit with, with educators and facilitators um, and mothers, and, and what I heard over and over is suggestions on how to expand. They want this to be more available, more accessible to more children. I'm so grateful for the two decades I've spent as a UNICEF ambassador. Truly, this work has been one of the great honors of my life and so formative in how I see the world and what we should be aspiring to achieve together. And the most important thing I've seen in my travels is how much alike we are, how the roots of so many of the problems I see around the world exist here in the United States as well. Despite the huge gap in resources and power, the problems are so similar in so many ways. It breaks my heart and it pisses me off because we could be everything we aspire to be. We have the resources and the talent and the goodness about us. We just lack the will to be sure people in Flint, Michigan and Jackson, Mississippi have clean and safe drinking water like the water wells I was able to provide in Ethiopia through this work. Hunger, poverty, 
inequality. They all exist here, too, just as they exist abroad. All we have to do to start fixing these problems everywhere they exist in the world is to start truly seeing that people who have less than we do are not less than we are. Once we do that, the whole world will change. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.